I have an aspiration that I know I share with um, at least some of the people here, because I've talked to some people here. I have an aspiration or an intention in my life that I take very seriously to live in a way in which no living being is ever shut out of my heart. That's a real aspiration I have. And, of course, as a human being, I get to bump up against my edges on that, you know, many opportunities. Um, You know, as a perfect example, um, it took me six years, uh, which is not very long ago, to be able to feel uh, love and compassion for our president, President Bush, for example. It took me six years. By the way, I'm going to use him as an example here, but first I want to take a moment and say... Um, my point here is not, uh, you know, they're, they're not like everybody here is a liberal or progressive, and if you're a conservative, it's, my point isn't about politics or who's right or wrong, and you could substitute in um, some difficult liberal, um, <laughs> and the analogy will work, because I'm not, it's, that's not my point here. So I'm really talking about how my mind works. But for me, really in the beginning, um, you know, if I would see his picture, hear his name, hear his voice, my mind just went nuts. And I, it was not, I mean, I was trying to like work with it because it was, I was really suffering a lot. I was just going crazy. Like I was, and a lot of people, it's been difficult. I still, um, you know, not so happy with <laughs> a lot of the policies, but actually it's been interesting. Something has shifted for me. And, and, and I want to, you know, be honest that some of it had to do, I'm sure, with last election where we <laughs> made it easier. So, yeah, because it's been challenging. And I remember talking to someone, a friend of mine, about when, uh, when Bush was elected in 2000. I was so depressed, and he suggested that I, uh, do, uh, I pray or do metta practice for President Bush. And he actually suggests I have a little altar that sometimes I kind of like this at home. It's kind of just got a little Buddha. And sometimes I meditate in front of me. He suggests I put a picture of Bush on the altar. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And so from starting with that, just trying the best I could, which seemed, felt very feeble. It really just felt like I just am not going to be able to get my mind around this at all. Slowly and just slowly, but it, it um, little bit by bit, and it's gotten to a place now where um, I really, um, I just don't really feel much aversion towards the man. It's been amazing. It's been not that you know I'm so great or anything, but it's just, if anything, it's relieved my own suffering around it a lot, and um, and that comes out of that place of of an intention to want to see the places where the heart closes off and then try to work with it in a way, you know. I bring that up um, because tonight I want to talk about, uh, which is typical for a second night of retreat, is talk about working with difficulties. Because I'm sure some of you, many of you, have had some difficulties in the last few days, if, at least sometimes. Some of you, perhaps not. And so now's a good time to actually talk specifically about what are some tools in our toolkit. What are some skills to help work, when the dif- work with when the difficulties come? 
What I find is, and certainly in relationship to other people, it's it's easy to have love for all beings when they're not bothering me. <laughs> when they're not being difficult, right? It's no problem. Not so easy when they're being difficult. I was recently um, uh, flying, uh, I was in the airport going through airport security, and so, you know, you go through, I don't know, some of you may not have flown, if you haven't flown since uh, 9-11, you don't know the changes, but most of you, many of you I know will know, you know, you go through, they check your ID, and then you get there's this long table you go to before you put your things through the x-ray machine, so you, you're taking your shoes off and getting everything ready to go through. So I was there in plenty of time in the airport, wasn't in a rush at all, and I really felt this in a really kind of a nice space. Just kind of happy I was going off to actually teach somewhere. I was just looking forward to it. And there was a man ahead of me, and, and you know, these tables are about probably as long, I don't know, 15, 10 feet, 15 feet long. So he had worked his way about halfway down. He was taking a very long time. So I wasn't in a rush or anything. I could have just waited behind him. I didn't think much about it. I just went around him and, you know, he, and as I got there to put my stuff, my um, bag through the x-ray, he threw his bag across me and right into the x-ray machine. <laughs> yeah, I'd gone ahead of him. <laughs> and I was, it was just kind of jarring and shocking. And I felt a part of me that actually felt like I kind of wanted to get into it with him. <laughs> it came up in me. I really was feeling, and I almost just started saying, you know, in my mind, I actually was kind of saying, you know, what is your problem, you know, and kind of really, you know, you didn't have to do that. You know, you're being a jerk, right? Or worse, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, and I, fortunately, I, you know, I, and I was, had some mindfulness. I didn't get completely lost in it, and I didn't. And I just said, oh, you know, no, please go ahead. And I just went <laughs> And I get to the other side, and as I'm going through the, the metal detector, you know how you can get your things, and then there's a rollers, and you can move down to the next person. He stood right, I mean, he just was giving me his attitude, right? He just <laughs> stood right there with his shoulder next to where the things just, I mean, I couldn't, I was sort of standing in the metal detector. So, and I was just watching him, and he went on. And it turned out he wasn't on my flight, but he was, as I went, he was sitting kind of as I was waiting for my plane, I could see him. And this was a great, uh, great place to watch the mind. Actually, I'm going to come back and say some things later about how I actually worked with it. But, but the first thing I want to say now is, is just to notice that, you know, my heart wasn't, you know, my aspiration wasn't uh, so great right in that moment. But I didn't lose it or forget it, but I was just noticing how easy it was to go into a mind of hatred and not so easy to open the heart. Right? So I'll come back and maybe talk about that later. I think in addition to difficulties with others, I think the same applies for ourselves. You know, it's easy to be present with ourselves, be kind to ourselves, allow ourselves to be when whatever's going on in us, in our minds or our bodies, are you know, it's just flowing, it's easy, the difficulties aren't hitting. Not always so easy to be present with ourselves like that 
when the same kind of difficulties, our own difficulties come up. And I think oftentimes when we come to retreat like this, um, it's like a magnifier for that. So what can happen is, and not always, uh, and this is certainly not happening for everyone, but certainly I know from the interviews today that there are some people who happens. You know, we come on retreat and we want to get peaceful and calm and or blissful and concentrated or all the things that we want to get. And what, and what happens is sometimes it's quite the opposite. Sometimes it's like, you know, we finally stop and it's if the things that had been covered over by the within us of the busyness of our, of our lives come roaring up. Or our bodies hurt. Our minds won't stop. Emotional, psychological stuff comes up. All these difficulties can come. Excuse me. And it can be very difficult. And what's very interesting to me is when you actually look at... Um, you know, really all we have to do is just sit quietly. <laughs> you don't have to make anything happen. Mary even was, you know, the other night, the opening night. I mean, she's saying, you know, take care of yourself if you need to go take a nap. I mean, really, there's nobody watching you. You just walk, sit, nobody bothering you. I mean, people may be bothering you, but, but I mean, you're... <laughs> But, you know, you're in your own space, (laughs) is what I mean. They feed you. Really, you don't have to do it. And how hard it can be just to be present with ourselves, right? Just to be present with ourselves. It's kind of shocking sometimes. (laughs) So so I want to discuss some of the ways of um, uh, working with difficulties. And... um, You know, the whole teaching of the Buddha, there's many ways, several ways I know of that it gets summarized, uh, distilled down into just kind of a pith kind of statement. And one of the ways is that the Buddha said he simply taught suffering and the end of suffering. That's all. Actually, uh, I don't want to go off into this too much here, but that's it's not exactly what he said. There's There's actually a technical term he used, which... Um, is, is worth, especially if you're new and haven't heard it, um, I'll just mention it briefly. Uh, it's actually, it's very important. One of the few Pali words that's probably really good to memorize and maybe not even translate, which is dukkha. actually taught dukkha and the end of dukkha. This word dukkha, uh, it does refer to suffering. And people often think the Buddha said life is suffering, but um, he didn't say that. He said life is dukkha. And it's a little more nuanced than that because we all know, and talking with some people today, there are people who are having, some of you are suffering, but there's others here who happen to be just having the hearts open. They're happy to be here. They're feeling great. They're not really suffering. It's a, it feels great. Uh, dukkha also refers to what I would maybe call a... Um, an unstable or an unreliable nature to things. Because um, even the happiness, the bliss, the ple- all the pleasantness, you know, things are constantly changing. And it's because things are constantly changing, um, it doesn't last forever. And it's, it's when we cling on to certain, I'm going to say more about this later, but basically the idea is when we cling on and hold on to the pleasant that's what creates the suffering because it doesn't last. And when it changes, we suffer. So I'm saying that very quickly. but um, So it, it refers to all of that, that there's a, um, 
yes, there is suffering, and there's also just any experience uh, isn't ultimately going to solve our problem because um, even the good stuff doesn't last forever. So. Um, so I think one way to think about the whole Dharma, the whole path of the Buddha, is is simply about finding and developing skills, ways, learning ways to help us in the midst of our lives to become more free, more happy in a way that's, uh, it's really about when we're talking about refuge, it's finding the the real refuge that can uh, carry us through, um, which is, and it's called skillful means. So again, I'll say more um, about that. Uh, let me read a quote. This is from um, a wonderful teacher named, who some of you know, named um, Ajahn Sumedho, who I know Mary um, knows well, and um, I respect tremendously. <clears throat> he says, um, The human habit of clinging to desire is ingrained. We in the West think of ourselves as sophisticated and educated. But when we really begin to see what is going on in our minds, it is rather frightening. Most of us are horribly ignorant. We do not have an inkling of who we are or what the cause of suffering is or of how to live rightly. (laughs) Not an inkling. (laughs) What we're doing here in Vipassana, in insight meditation, is... We, uh, I wasn't here for um, when Mary gave instructions yesterday, so I didn't hear exactly what she said. We're, we're not really, we don't tend to stress the concentration piece because just by working with the mindfulness, you get plenty of concentration. But we're really the concentration and this mindfulness are strengthening. And what is it we're doing? We're turning, you know, mostly sit with our eyes closed, although you don't have to, turning the awareness inward to our own mind-body processes, and we're coming really to explore very deeply exactly what he's seeing, coming to find out who are we, what are we as beings, what's the nature of our being? What's the nature of our suffering? What is it that keeps us from being free? These are the things we're exploring. Whether you know it or not, those are the kind of things that that we're coming to see. So it's exactly what he's talking about we're trying to explore more. And we need some tools, we need some techniques Um, you know all of us are trying to do the same thing we want to be happy we want to be okay we don't want to suffer and all of us are successful more or less but also you know we keep trying the same strategies over and over and we know that it doesn't always work so well we're not so good at we're good about suffering but we're not so good about what to do about it so I want to talk about a few Tips, maybe. The first one, uh, which is probably the most obvious, is that um, if there's any chance for freedom, it hinges on mindfulness. When we're not mindful, or sometimes people say we're not awake in the moment, um, but we're not being conscious in a moment, I don't tend to say that because, of course, we're awake, we're conscious, we're not unconscious, but we're we're on what I call being on automatic pilot. 
how most of us probably live a good part of our lives on automatic pilot. Right? So one thing I've said many times, so some of you have heard this, but uh, some of you haven't, is, uh, but I think it's really a good thing to reflect on. When we give the meditation instruction, say the first day, just being with your breath, just reflect. This is a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer. Um, but what is the instruction for when the mind wanders and you've just gotten lost in thinking, planning, daydreaming? What's the instruction? Come back, right? Yeah, actually, that's the instruction for once you wake up and realize you've been gone. When you're lost, there's no instruction. You're gone. <laughs> you don't even know it. So, first of all, it's very freeing because you can't stop it from happening. If you would, could you would have stopped? So, don't worry about it. <laughs> We can give up the struggle. We, we want to put some effort in, but we can, don't have to stress. The mind's going to wander off. When it's gone, you won't even know it. <laughs> yes, you will suffer then, because during those times, and not just sitting on the cushion, but in life, yes, we're on automatic pilot, so we're going to act and react out of the habitual, conditioned patterns of our minds. Depending on what those habitual, conditioned patterns are, um, how we act or react when we're with others or in any situation may cause more or less suffering in any moment, right? Yeah, and, th- of course, that's when we're going to need, seriously, a lot of the compassion for ourselves for those times. But also, we want to just not stress out about it too much because you can't do anything about that. All you can do is, in the times when you are, when you're not on automatic pilot, whether it's on the cushion or whether it's in your daily life, then we have some choice on what we do. So here in the sitting practice, for example, we keep it real simple. Just come back to your breath. When And by doing that, we're strengthening the power of the mindfulness so that as it carries out into our lives, we tend to be on automatic pilot less, and we tend to naturally be, on, be awake and present and clear and mindful more. It just can happen. Um, and we'll tend to get less deeply lost in things. It's not to say we're never going to. I don't know anybody who never gets reactive, who never, you know, you know, we're all doing the best we can do. And sometimes, you know, you can be meditating for decades and then the one thing comes and it hooks you right in and you just fall flat on your face. And what you do ain't so great. <laughs> and you know what? Until we're all Buddhas, by definition, we will have the places where we're going to get caught and we're going to react. So we need to take it easy on ourselves. We want to work hard and develop wholesome, skillful qualities and lessen the power of the unwholesome, unskillful parts in ourselves. But by definition, until we're Buddhist, and that's that's a high standard, there's going to be places in us, you know what, where we're human beings, and we're just doing the best we can. So with the mindfulness, we just, as much as we can, without stressing, we want to try to strengthen it. That's the number one. That's what we're doing here. Everyone here is doing that. So that's the first thing that I think is important. The first tip to strengthen. And we're already doing that. Second thing I want to say is um, 
when we started the retreat on uh, the opening night, we chanted the refuges together, and then Bob talked about and led us through t- formally taking the precepts. So we talk about the Pali word as sila, and sila is generally translated as morality, but it's basically, we've talked a little bit, but it's basically living out of these precepts, so trying to um, live and act speak, be in ways that create less suffering for ourselves and others and creates more happiness for ourselves and others. That's living out of the precepts. And that is often considered to be foundational for all of Dharma practice. And then it's said everything else builds on that. The mindfulness, the concentration, the loving kindness, all this other Dharma qualities build on top of precepts. I would actually like to offer, and this is, uh, I want to say, uh, not from the Buddha, but this is my own, my own, I think this is just coming from me, so I just want to qualify it, that I think is even more fundamental and that the precepts actually build on top of this, and that's compassion for ourselves. And it's another important tip or tool or aspect of working with difficulties, especially for the times when we are having a hard time, when we are suffering, when we are battered around by things and we're not able to find the inner peace, the equanimity, right? We're suffering. So if we start from the place of self-compassion, and that doesn't mean you have to be perfect at it. Like everything, we just start, we do the best we can with it. We're not going to be perfect at that either. We need compassion for that peace in ourselves, place in ourselves. But just having the intention or the aspiration, that's the starting point. From there, then, as we build uh, on morale, sila and all these other, we try to develop uh, uh, concentration and mindfulness and, and open the heart. Then it can come from a place of wholesome intention rather than coming out of aversion to ourselves. Rather than be, I'm all screwed up, I'm not good enough, or whatever our story might be, Right, as the starting point of like whatever's going on I need to get away from this and I've got to get someplace else or I can't be what I am i got to just <laughs> this isn't okay i got to be something else we start from a place of love even for ourselves and then yes we want to move towards the wholesome so that's another piece that I think is important in working with difficulties <clears throat> um, another thing I think is important is when we're here on retreat it's any time in life also but I'm thinking specifically here on retreat um, you know we talk about um, being with whatever experience arises right so you know if we're sitting and say a strong knee pain comes I'm sure Mary talked about this this morning uh, or you know how we work with it and be present with it I think it's important to say that, um, and maybe she already did say it this morning, that um, there are going to be some experiences that are going to be too much for us to be present with. Our ability to stay clear and awake and mindful and really investigate and be present with it maybe hasn't strengthened to the level of this particular pain. Uh, A good example I have of this, I've told this story before, is uh, this was maybe... 
nine or ten years ago, my daughter, I guess nine years ago, she was 17 and she was sitting her first ten-day retreat. So I was going to sit it with her. Actually, Mary was teaching this retreat at Vajrapani. And I had injured my neck a little time before it and I had one of these, it, it healed up and it took a few months and it was this kind of radiating nerve pain that if any of you have had it, it's just, not only was it intense, but the quality of it, I just couldn't be with it. And so I normally I just wouldn't have gone on the retreat, just would have canceled. But I, uh, um, I wanted to sit with my daughter, so I just, you know, I think I'd know better than this, but you know, I just fell into this trap and I said, okay, you know, I'm just going to sit there and whatever sensations arise and pass away, I'm just going to sit there with, right? Well, it just wasn't even close. <laughs> there was no way. I mean, I sat there and it's just like, it was so far beyond what I could be present with. It's not like, well, I should or it's a good idea. It just wasn't happening. Right? And I went and complained to John Travis, one of the other teachers, who, uh, when I was, and, you know, he just said, he didn't even blink. He says, well, you're lying down, right? You should be lying down. Let's get some ice. You're taking pain medication? You know, let's, you just, it wasn't anything about, you know, being present with it because it had gone past my limit. So I want to say that oftentimes we try to fix things when really we could be present with them and, and work with them. And we want to learn to do that. If we, if, and this is kind of the art, knowing when is it within our ability you know, there's, there's some places where it's clearly within our ability, and there's some times when it's clearly just like the neck pain. It's just clearly past the limit. There's a gray area. So, you know, it's kind of the art, and we're not going to get it perfect. And there'll be times when, you know, you stretch your leg out, stretch your knee out. Really, you could have worked with it and, and just learned how to be present. If we always stretch the knee out, and we never work with the difficulties, or we always react when the mental difficulties come. We don't learn how to find the freedom in the midst of them. On the other hand, if we take it too far, and we get kind of in the, um, you know, the macho, uh, you know, John Wayne kind of approach, and we tough it out, I, um, then, you know, at some point, I remember um, uh, the longest I've ever sat, I've done this a few times, but it's been three-hour sits, which I've done on longer retreats a number of times. I remember the first time I did it, oh, it was actually at this retreat, I think it was the first time I ever sat here at this retreat, and it was, um, no, it wasn't, well, it was here, but it was the one that Gil and John did, the New Year's retreat when it was here. And um, I realized I'd really gotten to this deep, concentrated place, and the bell rang, and everybody went out, and I realized I was going to keep sitting. And I realized I could do it. And I got to two hours, and then, and I was really just being with it, and, you know, I can sit, I've been sitting a lot of years, so I can sit an hour and a half, really without usually much pain, kind of get to two hours, that's hurting by then. <laughs> so two hours there was pain, but I could be at it with it. By two and a half hours, it really hurt. It was so bad. And I just lost it. I really couldn't work with it. It was just, but you know what? I wanted to bag three hours. <laughs> A complete corruption of the mind. Total greed. Every kind of you know, m- mental defilement. I want to say I sat three hours. <laughs> and I did, but you know, for the last half hour... You know, I was just kind of holding on. <laughs> trying to make it. <laughs> you know, 
I should have gotten up. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's like we want to find what's skillful and be, be able to be honest with ourselves. So I think that's an important piece also. Um, okay. Another thing I think it, I think is important is to make a distinction between um, two kinds of happiness or two kinds of well-being, if you will. Uh, what I'll call uh, conditional happiness and unconditional happiness. Uh, it's important to understand the distinction especially people who've been in the Dharma scene have probably heard this many times, but especially if you're new, this is very, very important uh, to know the important place for both. They both have an important place. Each are necessary. And to know, um, you know when it's time to, to go for one or the other. So conditional happiness is called conditional because it's dependent upon or conditioned upon having certain experiences and not having others. So when you're feeling <coughs> happy, feeling good, not having a lot of difficulties, you're feeling happy. And when you're sad or angry or struggling or suffering in some way, you're not. That's, that's con- the conditional. The unconditional is not dependent upon any experience and not dependent upon circumstances. That's a different kind of happiness. That's the happiness of that and any of you who I know many of you have experienced it there can be times for example sitting and maybe you have some aching in the body and if you haven't experienced this practice long enough and you will have times like this the aching comes it's unpleasant mind is perfectly at peace just as peaceful as if you were at bliss or something Perfectly at peace. That's an, more, an unconditional kind of happiness. It's not dependent upon the experience being pleasant or unpleasant. So I'm going to say a little more about that, but um, that's an important distinction. Um, now, the Buddha gave um, various... Te- now, he did give teachings about improving conditional happiness. And people sometimes are surprised to hear this. He gave some teachings on uh, improving relationships with others. He gave living better in in harmony in society. He gave teachings on increasing material wealth. Not a lot, and it was mostly to lay people, but there's a few suttas in there. Uh, I gave a class on one. There's these four suttas talking about how to make your life better in in the normal conventional sense. So he he, he recognized that there was a place for that. He didn't throw that out. But that actually wasn't what he was ultimately trying to do. He actually was ultimately trying to point us more, not so much to making us feel better, but more towards the unconditional. Um, I remember back, um, this was probably in the mid-1970s, I was uh, part of a, there was a group called the Prison Ashram Project, and we were teaching a, a meditation, a different tradition. I wasn't in the Buddhist world back in those days. Uh, it was yoga and, and meditation in San Quentin prison. And one of the prisoners came up to me, and he I don't remember what how long he'd been in or what his situation was, but he'd been in for a number of years, and he was meditating several hours a day. And he told me that um, the... Um, the, psych- the psychologist there thought he told, he told me that he thought he was crazy because he was happy 
<laughs> now, he said to me, we had an interesting conversation, I remember this very clearly, you know, if he could get out of prison, of course, he wants to get out. And he wasn't trying to be kind of fake about it. If he could get out of prison, he wanted to get out of prison. And it wasn't, and if any of you, you know, some of you may, you know, they have a program that goes in now, teaches different things. I've been in San Quentin many times. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't want to be in there. So that would be the conditional. When we can fix it, when we can make a change, um, uh, to the, we, we we do want to um, we do want to improve things in the conditional sense. In his situation, he couldn't change it, so he was working with what he had. So there's the unpleasantness and everything, and he was finding. I'm sure as a human being, he had his ups and downs, but he was finding the way just to find that inner happiness. It's kind of the cliche we talk about in Dharma and meditation of finding inner happiness. You can come to meditate and find inner peace. Right? That's more the unconditional. Dharma practice leads to both conditional and unconditional happiness. When we live by the precepts, it creates more happiness, you know, it's less conflict if we're being kind, wise with our speech and everything. You know, you can think of all these different precepts. You know, we're going to tend to have happier circumstances. We're going to just create them around us. When our minds are concentrated, you know, they're stable, settled, quiet, when you know it, it feels better in the in the present moment, and I, I would say a quiet mind really is its own reward. When we deepen in mindfulness, we're less reactive in the moment, in any given moment. So it, it all of those contribute to just more pleasant pleasantness in a given moment, but also they're contributing to the unconditioned happiness because it's through those that as we start to see more deeply into these patterns in ourselves that um, uh, the knots and the tangles of where we get caught start to loosen themselves. And that's another level. Rather than just feeling better in a moment, it's also working kind of on those conditioned patterns. So if you happen to have a mind, say for example, that tends to be aversive and angry and something like that, and you know, whatever, I'm just using it. We all have our different, different ways that we get... Uh, our minds tend to react, but that's one version I'm just using as an example. Um, you know, those start to loosen. If you have a mind that's more of a greed type mind, want, 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 it's, it starts to loosen. I'm more of a, you know, in Buddhism they tend to classify people as being more aversive oriented or greed oriented or desire oriented or uh, delusion oriented. And everybody's a combination of the two, of the three. And everybody, it's said in this particular model, you know, there's so many models. Of, in this particular model, everybody has a um, their particular uh, main one that's maybe a little stronger. I'm more of a delusion type. Um, some people, so that's just the way that works. So those t- knots start to untangle.
it's very important to um, it's very important to know when it's time. Uh, there's some inappropriate times to go for the unconditioned happiness when really we need for the condition. And an example I've used many times, but I think it just gets the point exactly. Some of you have heard this. Is I was thinking back to Hurricane Katrina and uh, when the people were stuck in the convention center, what was it, for three days? They didn't have food, water, sanitation. They had so much poverty. You know, People said, well, gee, they should get in their cars and leave, but they didn't have cars, right? They didn't have any money, right? You don't go and, you know, people kind of laugh and when I say this, but I'm, I'm really not trying to go for a laugh here. Um, you know, you wouldn't go to them and say, you know, you're, the problem here is um, that uh, isn't that, you know, there's unpleasant arising and not pleasant. Your problem is you're clinging, right? And you need to let go of, of the clinging, which is more the unpleasant. No, it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't be respectful, right? It's obvious when we say that. They need food. They need water. They need, you know, whatever, social justice and education and there's all that. So you need to recognize the places where the conditional happiness is important, just as the Buddha did in his teaching. But we don't want to think that's our only strategy. We, and that's what the Dharma piece kind of brings in, the unconditioned part too. Another thing that I think is important is uh, to notice is that we tend to, and this goes back to the mindfulness, and this happens to all of us, and it's really subtle and tricky and seductive, is that we get identified with our minds. Okay. So sometimes, for example, it might be easy to notice, oh, there's knee pain, oh, I was struggling, and then we kind of wake up and have mindfulness, and oh, okay, knee pain, and we start to work with it mindfully. But you know, another level is, to, is our own mind, so we get identified with our thoughts. Or with our mood, you know, I'm mad, and, you know, somebody walks through the door there and it's 15 minutes late and it disturbs me, and I, I, I don't notice. It's, a, it's one thing to be identified with my mind and my thoughts and my moods. It's quite another just to notice sound arising. Oh, a reaction in the mind. Oh, some anger came up in the mind, right? It's real different to have, just in that example, to have some anger that's worked hooked into versus that's known and seen. So we could say a lot more about that. I think a real important piece is not judging our our meditation practice, whether it's here on retreat or in life, in our, our any experience by how pleasant or unpleasant it is. That's a big one that we tend to do. So just reflect for a moment. Um, I'm sure you've all had well I feel safe with we've all had what we would call a bad sitting just reflect in yourself what made it bad yeah. I, I think I'm pretty safe in saying and without even knowing what's going on in everyone's mind that it would probably be some some kind of unpleasant experience you were sleepy you were restless you weren't concentrated your body hurt, what we call that bad, whatever yours is. You're so restless, I, you're going to jump out of your skin, you know, emotions coming up, I don't want to sit with this grief, whatever. And some of you may not have had it, serious about this, uh, if you're new, may not have had what you would call a good sit. But if you practice long enough, you will. 
And some of you who've had them will know, but if you haven't, I, I will tell you what a good sit is. <coughs> it's some version of the mind is, you've dropped, you've really gotten that taste of, oh, this is what happens when you, oh, this is what happens when you start to go deeper in the meditation. Wow, I really felt it. Now I see. I'm concentrated, clear, body's at ease. It's the kind of sit where when they ring the bell, you think, you know, I don't think I'll get up right now. I just want to stay with this another few while. Maybe I'll sit another 15 minutes. Right? Oh, you ever had a sit where body hurts? Mind, you're sleepy, restless, mind won't shut up. The bell rings and you think, no, I think I'll sit with this. <laughs> Everybody's laughing. Because <laughs> we judge it all because we're seeking after the pleasant and uh, pushing away the unpleasant. Okay? This is an important place to look. This gets into a really deep uh, central dharma issue. As human beings... How is it that we seek out our happiness? It's some version. You're not doing anything wrong here. I'm just pointing out what living beings tend to do. It's kind of wired into us, I guess. We're seeking out those things, those situations, those people that make us happy. Those experiences. We want more of those. We want more of what we want. And we want to have less experiences I mean, that we don't want. That's what we're all doing. We're not going to stop doing that. I don't know that you can stop doing it. I'm not saying it's even desirable necessarily to stop. But you want to be aware of that. Because if that's our only strategy, then our whole well-being, our happiness, that's the conditional, is dependent upon circumstances. And this is the key point, that despite our best efforts, we can sometimes, it seems like we can control things a little bit, but really, you can't control things. You can't make, you know, if you come in here to sit to meditate and say, all right, I'm not fooling around this time. <laughs> I'm really going to get concentrated. Right? You can't make it happen. All you can do is come in, bring your intention, do your part, put in your piece. And and what we're doing is we're strengthening the causes and conditions that will incline the mind to more and more have those good experiences. But, you know, even when you're on retreat, um, I mean, you can be on retreat for a long period of time, and I know a number of people here have done long retreats. I've done some uh, pretty long retreats. Uh, You know, I mean, many, many months. And... um, you know what? You could have one day where you're just, I mean, it's deep, and then for some day it seems to fall apart. I mean, that's already a judgment about falling apart. So we can't make it happen. And once we realize that, though, that's the key to our freedom. We can stop trying to make anything happen. Our job is to show up and do the practice we best we can. So we are heading in a direction. We do want to be more concentrated rather than less. We do want to have stronger mindfulness rather than less. We do want to have the the heart open more rather than less. But it seems like a paradox. It's not really, but it seems like a paradox that at the exact same time, 
It's not, and this is what Mary was talking about. It's, it really isn't about getting anything or gaining or getting anything. It's about, it's all in the service of freeing the mind. You know, if we meditate just for these uh, wonderful, beautiful, pleasant meditative states, and look, we're all going to do this at some points because they feel great. They do. And people tend to get, crave after them. So it's just another defilement in the mind that comes up of a craving after those things. Um, You know, um, But why spend your time chasing after some experience that's not going to last anyway? Even the, the best meditative states, and I don't know that I've touched the best that there is possible as a human being, but I have some experience out there, as, as a number of people here do. And I know a little bit about some meditative states, and um, as, as others here do. And you know what? They don't last. But the wisdom piece can last. The place where even when we're in normal, everyday street consciousness, the heart and mind can be at peace even there. So it's not about the, the state. It's the, the mind that rests at ease and at peace and is free from the clinging and the craving and is as peaceful and equanimous regardless of the state of consciousness, whether it's ordinary daily consciousness or it's some you know meditative state. So what we're being asked to do by all of this, and this is something you can apply directly even when the difficulties are coming in your practice, is rather than only seeking our happiness and having or not having any particular experience, we just make a little shift. And we get, can get more interested in what is our relationship to whatever experience we're having rather than the experience itself. That's the key. How are we relating with whatever it is that's going on? You know, it's said that every moment holds the possibility for freedom. If that's true, it's interesting to investigate the times when um, the mind's not free. Those can become as interesting or more interesting than the times when you're sitting in bliss. Right? Um, I recently um, was sitting a month-long retreat in a month of April. I was at a place on the East Coast where um, it wasn't a, um, a structured start and stop time. I know some people here have sat at this place several, but it's, it's just kind of goes all year round. So people are, you know, there's always a few people kind of coming and going. It's, it's not disturbing things there, but it's just the nature, you know, a few people are leaving, some coming, and you're kind of doing self-retreat there. So people be there a week, two weeks, a month, a few months, longer, whatever. So my first two weeks, I was just having just no dukkha. And it was great. And I know enough to not, you know, think. And I was think. I said to myself, you know, if it stays like this, I won't complain. This would be great. <laughs> but I was wondering, you know, when's it gonna? You know, I kept thinking, you know, you know, I wonder when the shit's gonna hit. <laughs> and of course, it did. You know, when it changes like that, by the way, we often think that something goes wrong. Like you, you know, you come in the morning, maybe and you have this really great sit. And then you go walk and you come back and <coughs> it seems like it all fell apart. 
and we're trying to get back to that sit, we think something went wrong. Nothing went wrong. It just changed, and now it's this. (laughs) And that's what's happening. So instead of trying to get back to that, let's see how we can work with what we got. So I was there for two weeks, and I just had a great, I was just going great. I was really in all the samadhi and concentration, and I was just really, it was great. And, um, and I was reporting to uh, one, Joseph Goldstein, who was the teacher there at the time, and this was great, you know. And, and then um, so I got a, someone moved in just in the room, it was on the second floor, moved in below me. And this place is pretty soundproof, I have to say. I mean, it's really, really quiet, and you'd go for just hours and literally be in dead silence. I was doing all my practice in my room so I was only coming out to eat and bathe and stuff. The guy below me was the uh, literally noisiest neighbor I've ever had. <laughs> ever. <laughs> He's clunking around. He's, you know, totally messing up my nice samadhi. <laughs> and He's talking. In his room. <laughs> so, you know, this is kind of it's a little embarrassing, but, you know, what's going on in my mind is I'm sitting there going, don't you know that you're, like, actually speaking out loud in your room? <laughs> and I'm up here above you? <laughs> and at one point, he started singing. <laughs> He's singing in his room. <laughs> That stopped. I was going to actually report him on. This <laughs> is like you know that really is. He should. <laughs> it's just too much to ask. To, uh, and the funny thing about it was, almost ninety nine point nine percent of the time, I was still sitting in dead silence. About four times a day, it would happen for about ten minutes. That's not that much. <laughs> And what I noticed is, and this was really a great teaching for me, I noticed that there were some times when the sound would come and I would be really bothered, like I'm saying, and there'd be other times the sound come and it just didn't disturb me at all. The mind stayed just peaceful, equanimous. It's as if I just heard a beautiful little bird chirp outside. (laughs) It was just... It was, it was just as good as, as if no, no sound had come. What I realized was, the sound's not bothering me. My mind is bothering me. It wasn't him. It was my mind. Shifted my whole retreat around. I had a great retreat after that. But different. It wasn't a great retreat because I was sitting in this tranquility of samadhi. It was a great retreat because I got so interested for the rest of the retreat not in the meditative experience, but what was happening in my mind. And it shifted everything. And I got more interested in my suffering than in my bliss. It's a big shift. And then when the suffering could come, now it takes a certain level of stability of mind and strength of mindfulness to be able to watch our minds like that. So that's what we're cultivating here. But as we can strengthen it, we can naturally see more. And then we see what's keeping me from being free in this moment. Right? So you can work with that on retreat here. If you're sitting, some yogi comes in the door 15 minutes late, 
be interesting to don't beat yourself up. Maybe you're not able to free the mind then. Okay, that's an interesting thing to notice and see. Or maybe you can let it go. We just shift around where we're interested in. And getting more, I guess the way to say it is getting more interested, not so much in the times when we are free. I, I mean, definitely want to appreciate those times and enjoy them. But getting at least as interested in the times when we're not free and what is it in this moment that keeps us from being free. That's a very interesting place. Um, so I have one more thing uh, just to end with here that I think is very important to end with. It's about making effort without expectation. I remember being on, this was a, a very long retreat and I had had a lot of expectations set up. I was actually set up, this was a year-long retreat I did and I had been um, um, there's these specialized meditative states you can get in called jhana. It's not, don't need to worry about it. Some of you have heard of them. And um, I had experience around jhana before. So after having been about, maybe it takes me about five weeks to get in there, four or five weeks. So, all right, I thought this is going to be great. Um, you know, I knew better again, but I fell into a trap. And to get there. Four or five weeks, I'm going to be in John. Then I got to all the rest of this time <laughs> where it's just going to go into all this deepening of insights. It's going to be great. You know, I'm going, it's about three months. No John. <laughs> and I'm just miserable. So I went and reported to the teacher, Joseph Goldstein. And he just kind of smiled. He goes, well, you know, the, the deeper truths um, are not in any particular meditative state. The deeper truths come in the non-clinging to whatever is happening. And I said something to him. I think I told the story last year, but um, I remember so clearly I said something to him back like, Joseph, I know that's true, but in order to realize that truth, i got to get... <laughs> And it took me another month or two of suffering before I kind of got it and, and really in the deeper letting go finally can happen. And then it, that allows other things to open. And what he said to me really was uh, very challenging. He said, how would it be if you came to retreat and you did the best you could, whatever that means, and nothing happened? I mean, not that nothing, but you know, obviously something's always happening, but you know what I'm saying? Nothing happened. Could you leave with the heart and mind perfectly at peace? And I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, it's a great teaching for me. So I would like to put it out to all of you, and I'm not suggesting that nothing's going to happen because you all know there's plenty of stuff happening. Ajahn Chah gives this wonderful analogy that I love, and I think I say it almost every time I come here to this retreat. He says... He used the images of a chili plant. This is in his book, by the way, which has become my favorite Dharma book, uh, which is called Food for the Heart, which is a collection of his teachings. Ajahn Chah was Ajahn Sumedho's teacher. And I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It's called Food for the Heart. Um, um, and it's just little transcripts of talks he gave. So you can just flip through the book, open it to any place. He said, the way we, he says, you know, when, when you're planting a chili plant, your job is you prepare the soil, you plant the seed, 
You water it. You protect it. You get the sunlight. That's your part of the deal. How fast it grows, that's not up to you. It's none of your business. You can't make it happen anyway. You do your part. Let the nature take its part. When we come to Dharma practice, we want to, you know, we want to get this result. So it's like we're planting the chili plant. We want it to grow flower and produce chilies all in one day. And he says, we even go stretching on the leaves wanting them to grow faster. So in relationship to your practice, your job, and you are all doing this, by the way, I want to point out, um, um, first I want to say, and I'm, this is trying to be a little humorous, but I'm actually really mean, it's like, you're not qualified to judge how well you're doing. Not, you're not. You know why? You're too close to it. You're, you're in it with you. You're the least person to judge and qualify how well you're doing on this retreat. And I really mean that. So you might want to just, next time your mind comes, you can, you know, as Michelle McDonald Smith used to say, you can pat it on the head and thank it for sharing. <laughs> Your job is to do exactly what you are doing. You show up the best you can. You know what? You may not think you're doing the best you can. You are. Even if you can't get yourself in here as many sits as you want. You know, if you could get here and yourself in for more sits, you would. Everybody here has come with a sincere intention. You show up here and you do the best you can without judging how you think it's supposed to look. You've done your part. Now let the Dharma, the Dharma knows how to unfold. I have a lot of faith in this. It's taken me a lot of years, but I know this now. The Dharma knows how to unfold. It's not up to you. Right? And so I'm reminded of this uh, poster that, for those of you who are old, for those of you who are young, you won't know this, but from those of you who are older, there was back in the late 60s and early 70s a poster of Meher Baba. He was this Indian guru. And he had this big smile, this big mustache. And then there was a very simple caption that said, Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> you remember that? And I used to see that and I would think, Well, I mean, it was Meher Baba, so you know, you had to give a lot of respect to it. But, you know, really I kind of thought, Well, you know, that's nice, but it's sort of kind of for children kind of level of spirituality, but not really. And I have to tell you, I've really come to appreciate the profundity of that teaching. Don't worry. Be happy. That's the whole dharma. The whole dharma. <laughs> so then the last thing is, if you are, which I've also said many times here, since sometimes we can't stop the mind from judging and comparing, it's not always so easy to do. If you are going to judge, a better indicator for you is not how, how well or poorly you're showing you think you're doing it. It's by your intention. You wouldn't have been here if you didn't have a good, sincere intention. I don't think there's any such thing as 100% pure motivation. It's always a mix of things. That's all right. But also mixed in there is a good intention. And that's not only for yourself, it will help you for others. When you see someone else who's acting in a way that may be difficult, maybe they're reactive and you're thinking, or it's the guy in the... Oh, that's right. I wanted to close by ending with this guy in the airport. You know what really helped me? I wasn't able to... I tried sending a metta. It wasn't working. 
<laughs> tried sending myself metta because I was in such a, you know, hateful state. It wasn't working. And then I, tr- I remembered to reflect upon what might be going on in someone to cause them to act that way. What might be happening inside them? Not judging the external way it shows up. What might cause someone to react out of anger sometimes? To snap at you? What might cause someone to throw his bag across the... in front of me? Or what might cause you, when you're judging yourself, to whatever it is that you judge? And what I thought is I could think a lot of things it might be. Maybe he was having a really bad day. Maybe something happened in the way in his childhood, right? Of not getting respect or people pushing him around and maybe it reacts in him now. You know, maybe he's just an angry person. I don't know. But it really shifted everything when I started to say, wow, you know, what might be causing that? So I want you to, I want to invite you then as you continue on your retreat. You know, we've made it for the halfway point, roughly. So we're in dead smack in the middle of it. To really rest, and as Mary likes to always talk about, really connect into your intention. So let's just sit quietly for a moment, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.